Let's turn to the book of John. We'll be in John, Acts, Ephesians, Romans, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians. We're going to be all over the New Testament today. We're going to start in John. And we have been looking at the Holy Spirit the last few weeks. In particular, last week, we started looking at the Holy Spirit's role in our lives. And we learned that the Holy Spirit has three ways that He interacts with humanity. He is with us, He's in us, and He is upon us. And last week we learned that that with us ministry is that He comes alongside every human being, unbelievers, to convict of sin, righteousness, and judgment. So what happens when we respond to that? Well, this morning we're going to look at how the Holy Spirit interacts with us when we respond to His conviction correctly, when we receive His testimony about Jesus. Because everything changes when we turn from our sins and place our trust in Christ. We're gloriously born again, and as a result, the Holy Spirit takes up residence inside us. So we're going to look at the Holy Spirit's work in us, the second ministry of the Holy Spirit this morning. In John 14, 16 through 17, Jesus explained this. And I will pray the Father, and He shall give you another comforter, someone just like me, that He may abide with you forever. I'm going away, but He'll stay with you forever. Who is he? Even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it does not see him, neither does it know him. But you know him, for he dwells with you. You've already experienced that work alongside you, convicting you of sin, righteousness, and judgment. It's why you've been following me. But then Jesus says this, and he shall be in you, something they had not experienced yet. Even though they'd been his disciples, they'd walked with him during his earthly ministry, they had not experienced the indwelling Holy Spirit. Therefore, this is a different experience with the Holy Spirit than conviction, that conviction of sin, righteousness, and judgment. Well, Jesus explained just a few chapters later what this new experience is. John 16, verses 12 through 14. Just as in John 16, verses 7 through 11, he explained the ministry of the Holy Spirit with us, convicting of sin, righteousness, and judgment. In verse 12, Jesus says this, He says, I have yet many things to say unto you, not the world, to you, my disciples, but you cannot bear them now. Howbeit when he, the spirit of truth has come, he will guide you into all truth, for he shall not speak about himself, but whatsoever he shall hear, that shall he speak, and he will show you things to come. So this idea is that Jesus says, there's more I need to teach you, there's more I want to teach you, but he says, you cannot bear them now now, in this present moment. Something needs to change. The word cannot here means you've not been empowered or you've not been enabled. The word bear, it means to accept a truth, implying that the truth is difficult to comprehend. I remember before I was a believer, I grew up in Catholic school, a religious family. I have the knuckles to prove I went to Catholic school. I knew about spiritual things, Christianity, Christian ideas, Jesus, God. I knew about those things, but I didn't connect to it very well. And then I was born again. I was born again. And all of a sudden, things that didn't bother me before bothered me now. I would read the Bible, and all of a sudden now, I needed to, I needed to change. I didn't even know why sometimes. I just knew I didn't want to displease the Lord anymore. I remember there was a pastor talking to a a gentleman who was an unbeliever and very smart guy, scientist or whatever, and he's like, I've I've read through the whole Bible and none of it makes sense to me. And the pastor said to him, it's because you're reading somebody else's mail. Jesus made it clear. He's like, I have a lot to tell you, but it would be too hard for you to understand right now. You've not been empowered yet to understand it. You need something else to understand it, the Holy Spirit. You need the Holy Spirit to teach you. And because he's not in you yet, I can't tell you about these things yet. So what is this new experience that, that they would have with the Holy Spirit? What truths would they be able to receive afterwards that they couldn't now? Well, the Bible tells us that our relationship with the Holy Spirit changes upon our conversion. The Bible tells us that prior to our conversion, we were dead in trespasses and sins. Look at Ephesians chapter 2 with me. Ephesians 2. Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 5. Ephesians 2, verse 1, it says, And you, referring to the Ephesian Christians, has he quickened, who were dead in trespasses and sins. In other words, before you were saved, before you were made alive, he says you were dead in trespasses and sins, 
wherein, in, in that dead condition, in time past, before you were saved, he says, you walked, you conducted your life according to the course of this world. In other words, the world of people who didn't know the Lord, weren't following the Lord, they were going one direction, and you were just going right along with them. And then he explains that it's not just the way the world goes, but it says it's that path that the world's taking is according to the prince of the power of the air. That's a, a name for, for Satan. The spirit, he's that angel, that fallen angel that's now working in the children of disobedience. So when we weren't saved, we were dead in trespasses and sins. We were going one direction, the same direction everyone else was going, away from the Lord. And that was because of the enemy's work in our life. And just in case we're hard-headed, Paul says, among whom also we all had our conversation. We all conducted our lives in times past, in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind. All of us were there. It doesn't matter. None of us were going to get saved. We're going to be right with God on our own. We were all going the wrong direction. And we're by nature the children of wrath, even as others. But God intervened. But God, who is rich in mercy... And for his great love wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, he quickened us together. He made us alive together with Christ, for by grace are you saved. That's what happens when, we're, when you receive the Spirit of God's testimony. The Holy Spirit, he's convicting you of sin, righteousness, and judgment. He's convicting you that Jesus is who he claimed to be. And when you receive that testimony, something glorious happens. Your spirit, we are made in the image of God. We're like an inferior triune being. We are spirit, soul, and body. Body, of course, is the way we communicate with one another. Soul is who you are at your core, your personality, your will, your intellect, your emotions. And then there is something that's hard to define. It, the Bible calls it our spirit. It's the part of us that fellowships with God. It's the part that God said, the day you eat of that fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you'll immediately die spiritually and you'll begin to die physically. The moment, the moment that Adam sinned and Eve sinned, boom, they died spiritually. The part of them that fellowship with God was broken. We're all born that way. We come out dead in our trespasses and sins. When we believe the gospel though, the Bible says we're revived, spiritually born. That's why it's called being born again. The word phrase born again literally means born or birthed from above, birthed from heaven. We are now spiritually reborn. Jesus was explaining this to Nicodemus in John chapter 3. Nicodemus came to him and he said, Master, he goes, I mean, teacher, we know the things you say come and the things you do, you, you have to come from God, but master, you know, you, you're saying a lot of things that we don't like. We don't, we don't understand all that. So tell us, try, explain to me. I'm on your side. Explain to me what's going on here. Beth was telling me there was an individual in our, our, there's like a newsletter in the neighborhood and, or in the city, and someone posted and said, looking for a non-judgmental church that teaches the Bible. Me and my girlfriend are living together. <laughs> and now again, you know, the idea though is if you're looking for a church that teaches the Bible, you're going to feel like they're being judgmental because if they're teaching the Bible, it's going to be calling out what you do. Well, the same thing with Nicodemus here, you know, he's, he's uncomfortable with master. I mean, you're, you're critiquing what we do and how we do things. And, you know, that's not good. And Jesus just cuts through all the nonsense. And he says, truly, truly, I say to you, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus is thinking, what? That's crazy. Can a man go back into his mother's womb and be born again? Nicodemus. That's Jesus later would say, are you a teacher of Israel and you don't understand this? Nicodemus understood what this meant. He used this phrase. He had probably preached about this phrase before, just never to Jews. You see, the concept of being born again wasn't a new idea that Jesus brought up or spiritually reborn. When a Gentile wanted to convert to following Jehovah, the one true God, when he wanted to do that, he had to be, leave his old life behind and start a new life to be born again spiritually. The problem was is Nicodemus couldn't get it through his head. Why would a Jewish person need to be reborn? We're the people of Israel. We're already where we're supposed to be. And Jesus explains the problem with his reasoning. John 3 verse 5, verily, verily, I say unto you, except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Yes, you were born physically. You're an Israeli. That's not a bad thing. That's great. You're part of God's chosen people. But 
that doesn't mean that you don't need to be saved. You need to be born from above, born of water and of the Spirit. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. You have a problem. That which is born of the Spirit, Spirit, that's the solution. So don't be so surprised I said unto you, marvel not that I said unto you, you must be born again. Now, the disciples experienced this infilling of the Holy Spirit, this born again thing after Jesus rose from the dead. Look at John chapter 20 with me, verses 19 through 23. Jesus has died on the cross. The sin has been paid for. All of that gap between us and God could be bridged now. And so Jesus appears to them in John chapter 20. He had told them, he's already with you, but he shall be in you. They hadn't experienced that yet. Well, here in John 20, they're going to. John chapter 20, beginning in verse 19. This is then the same day at evening, being the first day of the week. This is the day Jesus rose from the dead. So later that Sunday night, this is when the doors were shut, where the disciples were assembled for fear of the, the Jewish leadership there. It says, Jesus came and he stood in the midst and said unto them, peace be unto you. It's okay. It'd be a little creepy if all of a sudden somebody popped in the house that wasn't there before and all the doors were locked. He says, they were scared. He says, peace be unto you. It's okay. And when he had so said, he showed unto them his hands and his feet, knew he wasn't a ghost. Then were the disciples glad when they saw the Lord. So what's the first thing Jesus does? Then Jesus said to them again, peace be unto you. As my Father has sent me, even so I send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said unto them, receive ye the Holy Ghost. And then verse 23 says, and this was a metaphor. Is that what verse 23 says? No. No. I've heard people say so many times, oh, that was just Jesus was just symbolically doing something. Listen, when Jesus symbolically does something, it tells us, and that was symbolic. There'll be time, like Jesus said something, and then John will say, and he spoke of this, not concerning the temple, but concerning his body. You know, what do he say? Uh, destroy this temple in three days, I'll raise it up again. And what did John say? And by the way, he was talking not about that, that building, but his own body. There is no commentary on that here. There's no reason to think this is metaphorical. This is the moment when they were born again. This is that moment when they got saved, like you and I got saved. When the Holy Spirit came inside, they believed, and the Holy Spirit came inside and indwelt them. And because of that, he sends them out now to go do his work. Now, what happens when we become spiritually alive, we're born again, and the Holy Spirit comes inside of us? Three things. Number one, he seals us with his own presence. Look at Ephesians chapter one. The Holy Spirit seals us with his own presence unto God. You say, what does that mean? Well, we'll read it in a second. Ephesians 1, verses 13 and 14. Paul, referring to all the blessings we have in Christ, explaining what our position in Christ is. And after he talks about how those who first trusted Christ, the Jewish people, verse 12, in whom you also trusted, the Gentile Ephesians, verse 13, in whom you also trusted, trusted in Christ. After that, you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also after that you believed, you were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise, which is, he is, that Holy Spirit, the earnest of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession unto the praise of his glory. When we get saved, we are now in Christ. We have this inheritance, this incredible future in front of us that we are joint heirs with Christ. We're now sons and daughters of God. And the Lord gives to us his spirit to seal us unto that day, to keep us safe, to keep us protected until that day. He gives us his Holy Spirit also, it says, as a down payment. It says the earnest of our inheritance. It's like the, the father says, listen, this is all that's coming for you, and here's a piece of it now. And he gives us his Holy Spirit. That happens the moment you get saved. This is a one-time completed event that occurs the moment you repent of your sins and you decide to follow Jesus. The Holy Spirit immediately comes to live inside of you as surety of God's promise of our future full inheritance as a joint heir with Christ. Look at Romans chapter 8 with me. I said this before, but I'll say it again. One of the most 
clear descriptions of a believer in the Bible is someone in whom the Spirit of God dwells. When I was young in the faith, and you're a high schooler, and you got all these friends coming from different backgrounds and stuff, and, and then, you know, college, you got all these people around you, believers coming from different backgrounds you're interacting with, and I would have some of my charismatic friends would come up to me and, you know, hey, are you filled with the Holy Spirit? And I knew what they meant by that, but I would kind of be snarky. I'd be like, everybody's believer is filled with the Holy Spirit. What are you talking about? Of course I have the Holy Spirit and give them a hard time and be a jerk. Because <laughs> they didn't get their lingo correct. If you are born again, you have the Holy Spirit. If you don't have the Holy Spirit, you're not born again. It's that simple. No one can be born again and not have the Holy Spirit. Look at Romans 8, 9. But you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If so be, the Spirit of God dwell in you. Now, if any man does not have the Spirit of Christ, he doesn't belong to him. Jesus gives the Holy Spirit to every person the moment they repent of their sins and trust him. The moment they're born again, the Holy Spirit comes inside. And since Christ is in you, the body's dead because of sin, but the Spirit is life because of righteousness. We'll get into that more later. And if the Spirit of Him that raised up Jesus from the dead dwell in you, He that raised up Christ from the dead shall also quicken your mortal bodies by His Spirit that dwells in you. Verse 15, for you have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption whereby we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And since we're children, then we're heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with him that we may also be glorified together. The Holy Spirit confirms that to you. He's living evidence and proof living inside of you that you belong to the Lord and you have an inheritance coming. So that's the first thing he does. He seals us with his own presence. The second thing he does is he places us into the family of God, into the body of Christ. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 12, just a few pages to the right of Romans 8. 1 Corinthians 12, verses 12 and 13. 1 Corinthians 12, verses 12 and 13, Paul speaking on the gifts of the Holy Spirit in this chapter, explaining there's different gifts and different people have different things and God calls them different places, different ministries around. People say, why isn't there just one church? Because Christ never intended it to be that way. It's not that there's always one church, but there's different ministries. We don't all have to be in the same building to be doing God's work. Verse 12, but even though that's the case, there's one body. For as the body is one, referring to our physical bodies, and it has many members, it's got hands and feet, and sometimes as you get older, other things that weren't originally there. For as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of that one body being many are one body, so also is Christ. In the same way that our, our physical bodies have many parts to them, so is the body of Christ, the family of God. One, one church, but lots of parts. And how does that occur? Why is there one? How is there one? For by one spirit, we are all baptized into one body, whether we be Jews or Gentiles, whether we be bond, slaves, or free. And we've been all made to drink into one spirit. You see, the Holy Spirit takes you the moment that you're saved and he places you into the family of God. He places you into the body of Christ because there's only one church. And you know, whether we want you to be part of the family or not, you're part of the family. You belong. This is also a one-time completed event. It's not a process. You don't have to go through a membership course. It happens the moment you get saved. A one-time completed event that occurs the moment we repent of our sins and decide to follow Jesus. Now, I'm not trying to critique churches that have formal church membership. That's not the point of this. But this is one of the reasons why we don't have formal membership at Calvary Chapel Orlando. People ask me and say, how do I become a member? I say, we don't have formal membership, but if you come here regularly, you, you call this church your home and you're, you're committed to it, I would say it's important to support it financially. Well, then you're a member. If that's what you're looking for, you want the official member title, you're a member. <laughs> I understand the practical advantages of church membership. I do. I realize that's something that you can use to gauge people where they're at for service, things like that. I get it. But it also seems to me wrong to add another layer of, or requirement to join something Jesus says you're already a part of. No such level of membership existed in the book of Acts or anywhere else in the Bible because there's only one spirit, one savior, and one church. 
There are many ministries. But if those who are in those ministries are born again, they're all birthed by the same Spirit, and they're all part of the same church. So that's the second thing he does. He seals us with his presence. He places us into the family of God. And then thirdly, he begins the process of making us more like Jesus. Go to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Paul the Apostle starts off this chapter because he had ran into a problem. He plants a church at Corinth. He stays there, I think it's for a year and a half, maybe it's longer. Stays there for a year and a half, discipling, raising up leaders. God's doing awesome things in Corinth. He leaves, and then these other guys come in, and they're like, eh, Paul's okay, but he's kind of like the kid's pastor. We're the ones you need to listen to to get the good stuff. And they would have all these like letters saying like, we studied under rabbi so-and-so and and we were part of this movement and we did this and we did this and here's our qualifications. And so they wrote back to Paul and they said, Paul, we're kind of worried that, you know, you didn't really give us the goods. Like, where are your qualifications? I get people who will come to me sometimes and they'll say, you know, I'm, I'm called. I'm called to be a pastor. I'm called to be an elder. All right, go eld. Go shepherd. Like, why are you talking to me? Well, they want something. You want a title. You want a, want a platform. I'm like, if I'm hearing it from you telling me that you're called to it first, then you're nowhere near ready to be given a title. Go out and serve God's people. Go out and love God's people. Go out and do what God's called you to do. I'm not stopping you. Go be a shepherd. What does a shepherd do? cleans up stinky sheep, feeds them gently because they're skittish, leads them beside still waters, restores their soul, doesn't pound their soul. That's what a shepherd does. Go do that. Well, I need a class. I need, I need like a group that can come, a formal night to do that. You don't? Here's what I tell people. If you could teach one person, that's way harder than doing what I do way harder than doing what I do. Because it's awkward. I remember first time I tried to disciple somebody, I was like, well, how do you do that? They're like, here's a book. I'm like, all right, that's great. I got a book. All right, all right, here's the book. I said, you fill out the thing in the book and then we'll sit down and we'll talk about it. All right, all right, so we started off. Okay, so who is God? God the Father, they wrote down, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Good. What does the next thing say? It's awkward. It's just weird. It's like, how does this work? I'm like, I wish I had like a handbook, like how to disciple somebody. It's not easy. So you have to learn like how to interact, how to ask the right questions, how to draw them out, how to have a conversation where you're discipling them and teaching them when it's not in a formal environment where they can't talk back. You talk back here and we have ushers for that. How do you deal with somebody when you explain to them, okay, so this is what you need to do, and then you meet with them again. You're like, okay, how'd it go? I didn't do it. What do you mean you didn't do it? Why are we meeting if you didn't do it? Well, I don't know. I'm just struggling with this. I'm going through this. And you're like, you know, come on, get your act together. You have to learn. Be like, oh, oh okay. All right. Okay. All right. Let's, let's start over. Sir, the Lord must not strive. Must, must be uh, gentle to all men, ready to teach in a spirit of meekness, instructing those who oppose themselves. They're fighting against themselves, but they don't even realize it. That's how, you, that's how I was when I was a new believer. I'd go hang out with my pastor, and my pastor would say, do this. And then I'd fail, and I'd come back, and he'd be like, all right, well, let's start over. And he just lovingly taught me over and over again. Little bit by little bit, I started to grow. Go do that, and then we'll see if we can give you four or five people. Because that's where you learn to be broken for, pe- for an individual's heart. Where you learn to have a pastor's heart. Not just some gift that enables you to orate. Anybody can do that. I mean, think about it for just a minute, okay? Whatever it is that God's given you gifting to do, like how silly is it for us to kind of sit there and go, I'm really good at that. You didn't, you didn't do it yourself. Like you, it was a gift. 
I'm always amazed that, you know, I realize there's a lot of hard work that goes into athletics, you know, and when somebody could just do something better than everyone else. I get that. I totally get that. But I'm amazed sometimes, particularly like the fighting sports and stuff and just all the trash talking they do and whatever. And you're like, dude, you're huge. Like, you didn't choose that in the womb. Like, you weren't sitting there, like, you know, working out in the womb and you came out and you were 13 pounds. I came out with a form that was not conducive for basketball. It's a gift. Why are we bragging about it? Use it. And even for using it, I love that. I usually don't preach on this because it's harsh, but, but I tell our leaders sometimes. In Luke, it says, when you do what God's called you to do with the giftings he's given you, don't say, well, I did something good. Say this, I'm just an unprofitable servant because all I did is what I'm supposed to do. It's heavy. It's heavy. No bragging involved. I'm just a servant. I really didn't add anything to God. I'm just doing what I'm supposed to do. So, Paul here in, in chapter 3, these, he's telling me, he's saying, What's the, the, my commendation, my letters of recommendation? It's, it's you. It's you. Look at the work that God's done in your life. That's proof that I was sent by the Lord. So that's what I tell people, I say, go serve the Lord. And then you don't need to come talk to me. Because here's what will happen. Is I'll start hearing about all the cool things you're doing in people's lives, like so-and-so, man, they're just pouring into my life. Like, I feel like I'm, I'm closer to Jesus because of their involvement in life. And then we start going, okay, how do we help this person do more of that? But the, you keep coming to me going, you know, why haven't you asked me to teach? Or why haven't you asked me to do this? Why are you giving me this responsibility? Because you keep asking me for a title instead of just going and doing the work. Which, I mean, you may think you're speeding things up, but you're just kicking the can down the road because every time you say that, I know you're not ready because you're more about you than you are about somebody else. A servant of the Lord isn't bothered by the fact that he's not picked to do something. In fact, when I read in the scriptures, most people that are the ones that God uses, God's going, come on, come on. Lord, it's not, I'm not the right guy. I'm not the person who's supposed to do it. He's like, I called you. You're the right guy. Go. Have not I gifted you? Have not I said unto you? Have not I called you? Lord, I don't want to do it. Because that person is aware that's not about them. And if it is, they're going to fail miserably. They're going to hurt people. It's probably the number one thing I tell individuals who just keep coming over and over again with the same story and don't do anything about their calling. I say, you're a dangerous individual because you want all of this without any of the work. Go give your life away. God will put you where he wants you. So Paul's pleading with them. He's like, guys, look at the work that's been done in your life. It's the Lord. It's not Paul's training, Paul's equipping. I went to Bible college, you know, and I remember I got there, and I'm like, so when you graduate, do they, like, do they give you, like, do they ordain you? No. Well, do they give you, like, paperwork? No. Well, what do I get out of this? Nothing. You get closer to Jesus. How does getting closer to Jesus help me become a pastor? <laughs> Do you see the disconnect? That's the problem. It's not a stepping stone. It's always about getting closer to Jesus. Because where the Spirit of the Lord is, that's where change occurs in people's lives. Verse 17, chapter 3, at the end of the chapter, now the Lord is that Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. That's how freedom happens. That's how change happens. But we all with open face beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, we are changed into the same image from glory to glory, even as by the Spirit of the Lord. So here's how it works, all right? This is the third thing that the Holy Spirit does. The Bible calls this sanctification. It's the setting apart of a believer for God's holy use. We're looking at Jesus day by day. We're like, Jesus, I want to be more like you. I want to be more like you. And we're looking at him. And as we're looking at him and getting to know him better, the Holy Spirit's doing all this work behind the scenes. And he's changing us from the inside out, reshaping us, molding us, making us look more like Jesus day by day. This is not a one-time completed event. This is a process that starts the moment we get saved, and it does not stop until we die or the Lord Jesus returns. 
And this is the primary work of the Holy Spirit in a Christian's life. This is the primary thing that the Holy Spirit's doing in you in the fact that He resides inside you. Okay? How does that happen? Turn to Galatians 5. Galatians is just after 2 Corinthians, Galatians 5. And I've got to hustle. First service, I could blame technology. Second service, I'm just long-winded. Galatians 5, verse 16. This I say then, walk in the Spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. That's a promise. That's not just a possibility for a few rare Christians. That's a promise of God to every believer that if you walk in the Spirit, you will not. You shall not fulfill the desires of the flesh. Now, why is this a problem? For the flesh lusts against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh, and these are contrary the one to the other. The flesh, our our body desires, uh, the thing that was impacted by sin, it desires things that are opposite against the Holy Spirit. What the Holy Spirit's trying to do in our lives to make us more like Jesus, our flesh doesn't want any of that. It wants something completely opposite. The Holy Spirit, what what He wants, it's opposed to what the flesh wants. So when you get saved, you get born again, welcome to the battle. You have jumped into this tug of war that the flesh is pulling one direction and the Holy Spirit's pulling the other direction. Before, your spirit was dead and there was no tug of war, but now there is. So what do you got? You got you in the middle. You got your soul in the middle. That's who the battle's for. And as you're there in the middle, what do you do when you look at your resources in your soul? You see nothing. Nothing. And so if you try to go and just do this yourself, what's going to happen? The flesh is going to win. Paul said, I have looked inside, me and my flesh, there dwells no good thing. There are no resources available to me in and of myself to beat this thing called the flesh. And so Paul says, so that you cannot do the things that you want. You can't do the things you want to do. But here's the promise. If you be led of the Spirit, Galatians 5.18, you are not under the rule, this law. The word there, law, it means a rule that compels a person to carry out a certain act. Paul talked about this law in Romans chapter 7, verses 21 through 23. Romans chapter 7, verses 21 through 23. God gives us rules that compel us to act in a certain way. And Paul says, I delight in those after the inward man. If you sit down with me and you say, Paul, when you see God's commands, do you want to do them? He goes, yes, yes, I delight in that. Like that idea makes me happy. I want my life to be, be like that. Find a law. And when I want to do good, though, he says, evil is present with me. For I delight in the law of God after the inward man. Verse 23, but I see another law in my body itself, in my members. And it wars against the law of my mind, bringing me into captivity to the law of sin and death, which is in my members. This thing has been infected with a law, a rule that compels us, the law of sin and death. And when you're born again, that doesn't go away. That's why there's a tug of war. And the only way to supersede the law of sin and death that's in my flesh is to be led by the Spirit. If you're led of the Spirit, you're not under that law. So what does it mean to be led by the Holy Spirit? The word led, it means to be in step with the Spirit. The Holy Spirit's putting down the footprints and we're to be like, okay, I'm seeing where you're going and I'm following you. You're the one in charge. Every step of the way, I'm following you. Look at Romans chapter 8, verses 12 through 14. Romans chapter 8, verses 12 through 14. Therefore, brethren, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live after the flesh. I remember when I first comprehended that truth. I don't know my flesh anything. Let me ask you a question. What has your flesh ever done for you? Seriously. It promises all sorts of things. But what's it ever done for you? Flesh consistently, it says, you need this, you want this, this is good, do this. But what has it ever done for you? I go into the kitchen, and there's the beautiful things that my daughter makes that are very tasty, and I look over and I say, just take a small bite, and the flesh goes, why? It's good. Take a big bite, take a few bites. Come back and have multiple bites. 
And then you do that, you think, he's right. And you sit down and you're like, I just ate all of that. And you feel, then you feel guilty. And the flesh is like, you're a dummy head. Why did you do that? Why did you give in to that? Well, you told me to. You said it'd be good. You're so stupid. What do you owe your flesh? Nothing. I remember the first time I realized that. You are not my friend. I don't owe you anything. I have no debts to you. All you've done is mess me up. So when the flesh comes and it said, I was reading this morning in Proverbs, and it may not look like it, but I'm trying to eat better and lose weight. I read in Proverbs this morning, it was so good. And it's, it, the Solomon says, uh, only, have, don't only have a little bit of honey, lest you gobble it all up and then you puke. That's my translation, but that's <laughs> what it says. That's what it says. And I just chuckled and I said, all right, Lord. I said, we stay on that path. I thought, man, my flesh lies to me all the time. It hasn't done nothing for me. I don't owe it anything. For if you live after the flesh, verse 13, you shall die. If you're gonna, you're gonna live according to what your flesh wants, what it desires, things around you are gonna die. Your marriage is gonna start dying. Your, your family's gonna be dying. Your walk with Jesus is gonna wither. In contrast, though, if you threw the Spirit there it is, through the Spirit, do mortify, put to death the deeds of the flesh. Well, then things will start to live. You shall live. You're going to experience that abundant life that God has for you. Why? For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. In other words, when the Holy Spirit's leading your life, you're in step with Him. You're experiencing all the benefits that come with being a son of God, that abundant life that Christ promised us. If you are born again this morning, you don't owe your flesh anything. Following your flesh is no longer your destiny. Your inheritance is to live life each day in step with the Spirit. And if you're going to walk in the Spirit, you have to believe that's true. Because the enemy comes to you time and time again, and he's going to tell you, you will never beat this. You will never change. You can't do this. This is who you are. You're stuck. It's one of the reasons that I have such a problem with modern concepts of like who we are. Like all of us are somehow enslaved or stuck to this thing, like the cross is meaningless. I'm not who I was, thank God. I don't have to be who I am. I can keep growing. So can you. Do you believe that? Do you believe this truth applies to you? You say, well, okay, well, how do I do that? How do I live life each day in step with the Holy Spirit? How do I put to death the, the deeds of the flesh by the Spirit? Well, when the Holy Spirit's working in us, trying to change us, to make us more like Christ, there's two possible responses that we can have to that work. Number one, the Bible tells us that we can grieve the Holy Spirit. In Ephesians chapter 4, verses 30 through 32, it says this, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit whereby you are sealed unto the day of redemption. Instead, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. And be ye kind one to another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God for Christ's sake has forgiven you. Just as an unbeliever can blaspheme the conviction of the Holy Spirit and reject Christ, a believer can grieve. The word means to offend the Holy Spirit when he's trying to change us. He's saying, put this thing away. And we can go, no, I don't want to put it away. I don't want to forgive them. I don't want to be kind to them. I, 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 don't, I don't want to change. The Holy Spirit loves you. He, he knows what's best for you, and he never leads you astray. And when you resist his attempts to make you more like Jesus, that's an offensive thing. I know better. I know what's best for me. And if you've been doing that, please stop, because it's not in your best interest. He knows what's best for you. The other response we can have, the right response, is to yield to the Holy Spirit. And here's the how-to. Turn to Romans 6. We will finish up with this section of verses. I am going to go a little late today. Romans 6, beginning in verse 11. This was life-changing for me. When I learned this, 
This was life-changing for me. How do you walk in the Spirit? How do I put to death the deeds of the flesh by the Spirit? Four principles, very practical here. Number one, and this is how, this is the right response, is to yield to the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Not to say, oh, I didn't do anything wrong. It's all their fault. No, you yield to the Holy Spirit. And this is how you do it. Number one, likewise, verse 11, Romans 6. Likewise, reckon you also yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God through Christ Jesus our Lord. This is where most of us fail. We've got a problem. We see behavior. God calls us out on it. We recognize it's wrong. And we think to ourselves, but I, I'm never going to change. I can't change. I've been trying to change this forever. Other people, you're not the first person to point this out to me, Will. Other people have pointed it out, and I'm, I just can't beat it. And the enemy comes to us, and he lies to us, and he says, you'll never change. You'll always be this way. And we don't believe that truth. We, we somehow think we owe our flesh something, and we don't believe the truth that we're free in Christ. The first step to walking in the Spirit is to agreeing with the truth in God's Word. You say, Lord, I believe what you say, and as I'm free from sin, I don't have to sin. I don't have to be this way. I don't have to stay this way. You have to believe it's true. Secondly, verse 12. Therefore, because you don't have to sin anymore, you're dead to it. You're alive unto God through Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body that you should obey it in its lusts. So first off, you got this problem with anger and you say, okay, Holy Spirit, You've told me that I'm free. You've told me I don't have to be an angry person. I don't have to keep giving in to anger. I don't have to keep giving in to my rudeness. I believe that's true. And now number two, I make a decision. I'm choosing to not be rude anymore. I'm choosing to not get angry anymore. This is the other area that most of us struggle with. We don't want to change. We don't want to make that decision. We want God to just take it out of our lives. A lot of times guys will come to me with addictive behavior or really bad hab- habitual type of behavior and they'll be pouring out their heart and I'm saying, okay, well, you want to change? Yes. Okay, you, you want this to be, you know, not do this anymore? Yes. Okay, well, then let's just take it to the Lord together. You tell the Lord, say, Lord, I know I don't have to do this anymore and I don't want to do this anymore. And I'm, I'm, I'm repenting of my sin. I say, all right, go for it. And we'll start praying and say, Lord, Lord, can you just change me? Can you take this out of my life? Lord, you know how much I want it out of my life. Please take it out of my life. And I'm like, stop. That's not what I told you to pray. God's not going to violate your will. He's not just going to come up to you and be like, well, son, I know that you feel really horrible about how this makes you feel all the time. So I know you don't want to change and you don't make any effort to change, but I'm just going to take that out of your life. No. You and I have to make the choice to go a different direction. You have to make a choice that you're not going to let this thing rule your life. It has to be your choice. So that's the second thing. Number one, Lord, I know I don't have to do this anymore. Number two, I'm choosing to not do it anymore. I'm going to stop. And these two interact in a bad way at times because you say to yourself, yeah, I said that for the last seven days and here I am again. Good. That means you're on the right path. The only time you get on the wrong path is when you stop doing it. See, an enemy comes to you and he goes, what's going to be different about today? Nothing. What's going to be different about, about this? You're never going to change. You've been doing this for how long? Six years? Seven years? You're never going to change. And so we stop. No. You tell him, I'm doing exactly what I'm supposed to do. I'm reckoning myself to be dead to sin, and I'm choosing to forsake this thing. Yeah, but if you chose to forsake it, you wouldn't do it anymore. Don't listen to that lie. Don't listen to that lie. Thirdly, verse 13, neither yield you your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin, but yield yourselves unto God as those that are alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness unto God. See, what you do then with that anger problem, you say, Lord, I know I don't have to be angry anymore, and I, I believe that. I'm standing on that promise. And Lord, I make a choice. I'm, gonna, I'm repenting from anger right now. But Lord, you know me. You know how quickly I get angry. I don't have any resources in and of myself to stop this. So Lord, here's my heart. Here's my mind. Here's my mouth. 
I'm giving all of these parts of my body to you to be used as an instrument by you for righteousness because I can't wield it as an instrument for righteousness. I will fail every time. So Lord, I've made a choice, but I can't fulfill that choice if you don't fill me with your spirit in this area. So Holy Spirit, I'm yielding this part of my life to you. Take my mouth, take my heart, take my mind and live through me. I remember as a young man battling uh, a pornography addiction, I heard someone give us a teaching in 1 Thessalonians 4 where they talked about this is the will of God in your life, sanctification, purity. And, and, and talked about this topic of yielding your members up to God as an instrument to be used for righteousness. And he said, have you, have you yielded your sexual organs, your, your, your sex drive as an instrument to be used for righteousness? Sounded bizarre. I thought, we're talking about that in church. That's just weird. But then I thought about it. But that's what the Bible says. You got a, a, a lion tongue? All right. The answer is not to cut it out. I mean, unless you really have to, but Jesus said, if you have to, right? Just kidding. Please don't cut your tongue out. <laughs> Come, Lord, I reckon myself to be dead to the sin of lying. I don't have to, or gossip. I don't have to do those things anymore. And so I'm making a choice to stop. But Lord, you know my tongue. You know how long I've been this way and you know how hard, how many times I've tried to change on my own and it's not worked. So I yield my tongue up to you as an instrument to be used, not for unrighteousness anymore, but for righteousness. Holy Spirit, you rule my tongue from now on. Please. And the fourth thing, for sin shall not have dominion over you, for you're not under the law, but under grace. You stand on the promise of God's empowering grace. When you fall one day, then you come back to God and say, God, I'm so glad this is not based on my ability to pass a test. I'm so glad that this is based upon your grace and my position in Christ. So I come back to you again, and again, I reckon myself to be dead to sin. I choose not to sin in this area anymore, and I give whatever that part of your body, your mind, your heart, I give that part to you as an instrument to be used for righteousness. God, take it, fill me with your spirit in those areas, and live through me. I stand on the promise of your grace that sin is not going to reign in my life because you've set me free. Not because I deserve it, not because I'm good enough, but because you're gracious. That's how you walk in the Spirit. Those four verses right there are those four principles. In the same way you had to make a decision the day you were born again, you must make a decision each day who you're going to yield your life to. If you keep reading in Romans 6, he says, yield our servants of sin to destruction or we yield our, our members of right, as righteousness to God. You have a choice each day. You see, the problem is, most of us don't wake up each day and say, flesh, I'm going to yield to you today. Have at it. Make everyone around me miserable. But what we don't understand is, and what we must understand is this, that's the default setting if no choice is made. That's how you wake up. You don't wake up in the spirit. You wake up in the flesh. You're going to walk in the flesh by your natural default setting. So there must be a decision to yield to the Holy Spirit by living out Romans 6, 11 through 14. Because without yielding to the Holy Spirit daily, the works of the flesh are all you and I are capable of. In contrast, when we yield to the Holy Spirit, he does something wonderful, something powerful. He fills us with himself. He empowers us to walk in step with him and he overcomes our flesh. And that results in people coming to the tree of our life and finding what? Not the works of the flesh but the fruit of the Holy Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, gentleness, kindness, self-control, faithfulness. They see something supernatural. And Paul says at the end of Galatians 5, there's no law that can overrule those things. No law. If you walk in the Spirit, that is what will happen. I promise you. One final word. If you read Ephesians 5, when it talks about being filled with the Holy Spirit, it says, be filled with the Spirit, speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, making melody in your heart to the Lord, submitting yourselves one to another in the fear of God, right? If you go to Colossians 3, it says the same thing, just a little differently. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns, spiritual songs. The Bible equates being filled with the Holy Spirit with being filled with God's word. That's what Jesus told us, right, in John 16. I, I want to teach you things now, but I can't because you haven't been empowered yet. 
Well, we're born again now. If you're a believer here today, you've been empowered. So now you can. So if you want to be filled with the Holy Spirit, you want to walk in the Spirit, you've got to get into God's Word. And that's how it works. You read about, take a little bit of honey. Don't gorge yourself on it lest you vomit. And you read that and you go, Lord, I get it. I get it. This needs to stop. I need to exercise self-control. But that's a fruit of your Holy Spirit. So Lord, I reckon myself to be dead indeed under that sin. I don't need to be a glutton. I can exercise self-control because I'm your child. And I choose to, Lord. I reject that life of just eating whatever I want. I'm choosing to have self-control. But Lord, you know me. I can't do that on my own. So I give you my, my taste buds, my, my gut, my, my mind that wants and craves those things. And I yield those things up to you as an instrument to be used for righteousness. And Lord, I stand on the promise of your grace that you're not going to fail. No matter how many times I fall, you're going to get me through this. And I'm going to keep coming back. That's how it works. That's how we walk in the Spirit. The Spirit and the Word are in, in, intricately linked together. We become wise for, and understand what God wants from reading and applying the Bible to our lives. And the Holy Spirit's our teacher when we do this, showing us the areas we need to yield to Him so He can live through us. Walking in the Spirit's not something you're going to go, Holy Spirit, what do you want me to do? No, you pick this thing up, and then He speaks to you and you respond back to him. Amen? Well, now it's application time. What are you going to do with it? Like, this is very practical. What are we going to do with it? If you have not been reading your Bible, you're not going to be walking in the Spirit. If you're not applying it to your life and responding to him, as Romans talks about, that, that's what needs to change. That needs to change today. You need to acknowledge where it's wrong, and then Go through Romans 6 and make it right and walk with him through it. If you've already been doing that, then stay there. Either way, whatever you fall today, responding and applying this word to your life, you're going to start or keep growing. I promise you. And if you either failed to adopt this or you've been becoming lax in it, you're going to struggle in your Christian growth because it's the Holy Spirit who grows us, not ourselves. So change that. Start redeeming the time like we read in our scripture reading. Let God's spirit have his way. Make that decision to open your Bible, to let him teach you, and then to yield whatever he says. As the young people say today, let the Holy Spirit cook. Let him cook. Let him do his thing. He knows what he's doing and he loves you, amen? Let's all stand. I think I embarrassed my daughter. My kids always make fun of me. They say, Dad, you didn't use it right. That's why I'm, I'm old. The Holy Spirit knows what he's doing. So, Lord, we trust you. You're all-knowing, almighty, and you love us. The Holy Spirit, you were sent to us as this gift from Jesus. We don't want to grieve you. We want to yield to you. In Jesus' name, amen.